Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. The other day, Lena, my wife, and I were taking a walk with our little puppy, Jaber. Um, and it was you know, a day kind of like today. It was glorious weather, not a cloud in the sky, perfect, like 65 degrees, no humidity. The leaves were changing colors, crunching underneath our feet. And there was just one thing disturbing the peace. The gaggle of campaign signs crowding us from all sides in everybody's front yards, reminding us that there is an election coming. But finally, towards the end of the walk, I stumbled across a new sign that gave me hope and set my restless soul at ease. And the sign read, Dogs 2020, because humans stink. If that is not a literal sign of our times, I don't know what is. We are in a season of greater disillusionment and distrust in division, uh, certainly than any that I can remember in my lifetime. People are sick, and they're sick of each other. You know, and as we hurdle towards a pandemic election day, I often feel more of a sense of impending doom than hope. And so the question that I want us to wrestle with this morning is this. Does Christianity have anything to say to this? Does Christianity, does the Christian faith speak to our place and to our time? Does it speak into real life or is it something less? And when I look around for answers to this question, I see often two competing opposite interpretations of Christianity that are put forward as the answer in our culture. On the one hand, one interpretation of Christianity goes like this. Jesus came to die for our sins so that we can go to heaven instead of hell when we die. And all this talk about politics and racism and social justice, that all has more to do with communism than Jesus. No, to follow Jesus, we need to focus on individual people's hearts and their relationship with God so that we can have salvation and eternity. That's one interpretation of Christianity. And then on the other hand, there's a completely opposite one that says, no, 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 that's all wrong. They've got, that's totally wrong. No, Jesus came to inspire a political movement based on principles of equal distribution of power and resources. And all this talk about heaven and personal forgiveness, that's of no help to people who are oppressed. No, to follow Jesus, we need to focus on power structures like our government so that we can enforce these ideals and people can experience salvation in the here and now. Two versions of Christianity, radically different from each other, could not be any more different. And yet here's the thing. Both of these messages that claim to be Christian make the exact same tragically mistaken assumption. See, both of these beliefs Assume that heaven and earth are in competition for our attention. Heaven and earth are in competition for our attention. 
and we can only pick one, heaven or earth, you choose. But what if that isn't true? What if that's a false choice? What if the gospel is about more than either otherworldly piety or partisan politics? What if Eugene Peterson, the late Eugene Peterson, was right when he suggested that the gospel is more political than we ever imagined, but in a way that nobody expects? This morning, we're kicking off a new sermon series called Kingdom Come. And in this series, we're going to be looking at probably the most famous collection of Jesus' teaching anywhere in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. But if the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most famous teachings of Jesus, I think it's also one of the most often misunderstood. See, some look at the Sermon on the Mount and they really say it's nothing more than just kind of a timeless collection of common sense ethical wisdom. You know, do unto others, judge not, got it, all that stuff. But I'm pretty sure they aren't reading the whole sermon. And they're skipping over the parts about embracing persecution, ripping your eye out if you experience lust, and loving your enemies. On the other hand, some people will say, no, the Sermon on the Mount is actually, it's such a lofty standard that we shouldn't even try. It's really just there to make us give up and have faith instead. And I'm pretty sure they are skipping over Jesus's own conclusion to the sermon, where he says, the one who hears his words and does not act on them is like a fool who tries to build their house on sand. But the Sermon on the Mount, I want to suggest to you, is neither generic wisdom nor a rhetorical bait and switch. We're choosing to look at it specifically in this season of our life together. Because in it, Jesus unveils his party platform. He unveils a Christian politics. Now, before I go any further, I got to clear something up. Because I assume and I imagine every time I say this word politics, our collective blood pressure starts to rise a little bit, right? Even via Zoom. I'm assuming that probably comes through. I feel it. Because You know, when we hear the word politics, what we think of is this toxic partisan back and forth that we're surrounded by every day in American electoral politics. That's what we as politics is, is it's reduced to that. But that's actually not it. Politics, in its deeper sense, in its broader sense, really is answering this question. How is our life together meant to be shaped? What is our life together as a community? supposed to look like? And how do we get there? Whether the community that we're talking about is as a group as small as our family or as large as a nation. And so, you know, every time you do something that influences the life of the communities that you're a part of, whether you're laying down the laws of the the rules for the dinner table, or whether you're volunteering at a local school, whether you're um, voting, in a national or a local election, or whether you're setting up a fantasy football league, you're engaged in political activity. We do this all the time. We are political beings because we are communal beings, right? And in this sense, the gospel and the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely political. 
it has something to say about our life together. But it's not partisan. Because the only party that Jesus has a platform for is what he calls the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching us, right in the midst of all these other competing parties and competing kingdoms that vie for our allegiance, he's teaching us what life together in God's kingdom, under God's rule, is meant to look like here on earth. Matthew 4.17 summarizes Jesus' message in Matthew up to this point. In one sentence, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is God's politics. It's God's way of ordering things. And Jesus says that in him, God's rule is breaking into the world. In Jesus And in those who repent, that is, who turn around and place their allegiance in him, in him and in those who follow him, he says that the prayer that he told us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that prayer is being answered. But what does it look like when heaven and earth collide? Well, turn with me. To Matthew chapter 5. I mean, with the rest of our time, let's look at these opening words from the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 1 says that, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. The setting, I think, of the Sermon on the Mount is actually important. When Jesus was being followed by huge crowds of people, But here, he retreats from them, and he climbs up a mountain to teach not just everybody in general, but his disciples. This sermon is for those who follow Jesus, who want to live as citizens of God's kingdom. And like Moses, who gave the law to Israel from Mount Sinai after their liberation from slavery, Jesus gives a new law to those of us who have already experienced his forgiveness and grace. These aren't rules to earn God's love. They're a gracious law given to those of us who know God's love already. And in giving us this law, Jesus is forming a new people, a new counterculture who live out the platform of God's kingdom in the midst of the earth. Jesus begins with maybe the most famous part of the whole sermon. You've probably heard this before, the Beatitudes. Or as a friend of mine growing up used to call it, and I get it out of my head, the beatitudes. Um, and you could, you could probably translate this word of blessings that shows up again and again also as congratulations. Congratulations. You know, think of an award ceremony, right? And they always will say, and the award goes to usually somebody rich and famous, right? But this award ceremony is very different. Listen to who gets awarded in God's kingdom, starting verse 3. Congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The award goes to those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This sounds like an upside-down award ceremony, does it not? You know, in the communities that we tend to organize, you know, these people would be receiving the curses, not the congratulations. I mean, these are the losers in our society. Sad people are awkward to be around. Meek people, peacemakers, they'll be taken advantage of. People who are worried about purity, they are naive, right? No, the Beatitudes or the congratulations in our culture, you know, they go to the popular, the powerful, the good-looking, the smart, the business-savvy, the racially and socially privileged, the positive thinkers. But what Jesus tells us, I think, in handing out this particular set of awards is that it's actually we who are living upside down. It's actually we who have been looking for blessing in all of the wrong places. And so he gives us the Beatitudes, I think, as, as a sort of a compass to help us know which way is up and which way is down in God's kingdom. He shows us where to look if we want to see where heaven is breaking into earth. And it's not in the places or among the people that we might expect. The blessed people Jesus is describing are those who are audacious enough to set their hope in God's ordering of things, in God's right-side-up kingdom, instead of in the upside-down kingdoms of this world. But setting your hope on something that is so different than what our culture calls blessed can be painful, and it has a cost to it. And so it's no accident, I think, that the very ones that God calls blessed are often those at the very bottom of the pecking order when it comes to the social structures of our society. They are often the ones who are most aware of just how upside down our world and our culture is and are most desperate to receive what God has to offer us. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who are needy and have no illusions about their own self-sufficiency. And that's why he says, blessed are those who mourn, those who weep over the brokenness of things. The mourners are those who know that something is wrong, both with the world and with themselves, and they care about it. They refuse to become calloused, despite the constant bombardment of bad news that we hear. The blessed ones, the ones who are oriented to God's kingdom, care about sin and the suffering around them and within them. But kingdom-oriented people, the people living right side up, they don't just recognize and experience the emptiness of our world. They also long and they hope and they work for something better. That's what it means, I think, to hunger and to thirst for righteousness, which could also be translated justice. See, righteousness in the Bible is not just a word that talks about our 
private, personal morality. And it's not just about our legal status before God, although it includes those things, but evangelical heroes even, like John Stott and John Calvin, they'll point out that biblical righteousness also includes social righteousness, liberation from oppression, civil rights, justice in law courts, opposing evil causes, defending the good, working for equity and justice in the world. That's biblical righteousness. You know, this, these are people who hunger and long for, who work for, as Isaiah says, the prophet, to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free. This is not Marxism. This is biblical theology. This is the heart of God. Blessed are those who weep over the brokenness of our world and long for God's righteous and just kingdom to come. For they will be comforted. They will be filled. God's kingdom will come, Jesus says. The other day, I came across a song uh, by the one and only uh, famous gospel singer, Kirk Franklin, um, a recent song he wrote called Strong God um, that I think embodies this heart of the Beatitudes in a really amazing way. Um, and some of the lines from the chorus go like this. Um, Kirk Franklin writes, the government keep lying to me, telling me that they're going to set the people free. Heaven, please, we're in a state of emergency. We need a strong God. We need the real God, the God with the resurrection power from the grave to take away the hate, to heal the human race. This is a song of someone, and I don't think it's an accident that this comes out of the black church. This is someone who knows intimately that the kingdom of America or any other human kingdoms in this world cannot bring us the blessing and the hope that we long for that we were made for. It's a song that's expressing a hunger and a thirst for God's righteous kingdom to break into this world and to reshape our reality, not just in the privacy of our own individual hearts, but publicly, corporately, globally, even politically, in the deep sense. Not through the Republican or the Democratic Party, but through the resurrection power of God. Reorienting our lives and our hopes to God's right-side-up kingdom is not easy. It's often painful, and especially for those of us who benefit from the way things are set up in our world, it might even feel like crucifixion. But this is the way of repentance. This is the way of turning away from our false hopes to set our allegiance on Christ, our only true King. But when we do, when, like the disciples, we are willing to leave the crowds behind and become a people who are different, who look upside down to the world around us, something remarkable happens. Jesus says, he tells us finally in verse 13 and 14, that his disciples are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The salt in Jesus' day, was used to preserve meat. It was used to give flavor. And light, in Jesus' day, well, back then it was used to help people see, believe it or not. 
Now, Jesus is promising us that when we put our hope in and we orient our lives around his kingdom, when we're willing as a church to be different than the world around us, we won't become a holy huddle. We won't become a sectarian enclave. We will actually become a blessing to the world around us. See, this is the counterintuitive message of the Sermon on the Mount. The more distinct from the world God's people become, the more salty and bright they are. But the more salty and bright they are, the more they must be connected to the world around us. Salt is no good if it loses its saltiness, and it's no good if you leave it in the jar. A lamp is no good if it goes dim, and it's no good if it's covered up, right? This is the call, as cliche as it may sound, to be in the world, but not of the world. So what does that mean when it comes to a political season like the one that we are living through? We need to be honest, it's complicated. You know, there are no simple, easy answers to this. But I think that we can at least say this. Jesus's kingdom cannot be identified with any particular political party or candidate or movement that you will find in this world. It cannot. You know, and Christians have made the mistake of doing just that many times in American history and have caused a lot of damage. You know, we try to come to Jesus to pose this question to him, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat, right? Are you pro-capitalist or are you pro-socialist? These are the boxes. Which one do you fit in? But the reality is Jesus does not fit in our political boxes. Jesus is a mascot for nobody. Jesus is not a celebrity handing out endorsements. Jesus is the king of the world. He is the king of his kingdom, of the Lord of the universe. And one day, all humans who are in positions of power and influence in our world will answer to him, not the other way around. And yet, Jesus is also a king who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and became nothing. He became a human, walked among us, taught and worked and labored and suffered among us, and died for us. The true salt, the true light, the one right-side-up person in an upside-down world. And we are called to follow that kind of king. So to hear me loud and clear, what that means is that disengagement is not an option for a Christian. We are called to be in the thick of things as Jesus was, not for our own sake, but for the sake of those around us, for the sake of the world. We are called to engage with our world as intimately as salt engages with meat. But of course, getting involved in this actual world that we live in will be messy. You know, because there is no political party that perfectly represents God's kingdom, there are no simple answers. You know, and that doesn't mean that all options are equal. We have to make judgments. But when we do vote, volunteer, protest, organize, and engage with the world around us as Christians, 
We do it not to secure our own interests, but to love our neighbors. And not just our neighbors who are well off, but even and especially those who are poor and powerless, the meek, the hurting, those who have been wounded by the kingdoms of this world. And so I want you to consider this morning, how will the choices that you make about whether to vote, who to vote for, how to engage, what to do in the world around you as a communal being, how will those choices impact those around you? And just as importantly, what will it tell them about the God whom you serve? And let's not forget, brothers and sisters, that even while we are tempted to place all of our attention in this noisy season on the things that happen on the highest and most televised platforms in this world, let us not forget at the same time that it is often, that often God's kingdom is breaking into this world in the places that we ignore, in the small, in the lowly, the forgotten places of this world. Jesus calls us neither to otherworldly irrelevance nor to partisan bickering. Instead, he first calls us to himself to learn from him, to receive his blessing, and to begin to live right side up. Not so that we can feel good about ourselves or condemn anybody else, but so that others may see us, he says, and praise our Father who is in heaven. So that a world who is on the verge of placing its hope in dogs might know that there is a strong God. There is a real God who reigns and whose kingdom is around us and is available even to the least and to the last and who will one day turn things around and make all things new. As we began this service, as we say every Sunday morning, blessed be his kingdom, now and forever. Amen.